This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm your solo host today, John Plotz, and I want to welcome you to a very special collaboration with the fantastic podcast, High Theory, where they and today we get high on theory. So, Sharonik and Kim, hello. One of the things I really love about your podcast, there's so many things I do, but one of the things I really love is the way that you have your guests introduce themselves. So can I ask you just to introduce yourselves and tell us about the podcast? Um, So I'm a postdoc in the core curriculum at NYU, and I write about literature and medicine, specifically electricity and literature and how it's involved in medical devices. So I've done recently I've been really excited about speculative fiction and I'm gonna I'm excited to talk about that with you guys today um but I co-host this podcast high theory with Sharonic it's sort of been a pandemic project and one that is you know really excited about theory and its relation to the world yeah and my name is Sharonic Bosu and so Kim and I we shared an office at NYU English and Thank you for using the present tense for that, Sharonik, rather than we once shared an office back when we were. Uh, we, we, okay, so the office is still there. Our names are still there on the door. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's. My snacks are still in the cabinet. Um, uh, that wonderful rye whiskey is still there. Um, oh, that's good to know. I have scotch in mine. But so will we ever get back to it? No. no. I'm doing <laughs> a straw. Office, and this podcast is a pandemic kind of continuation of the conversations that we had in that office. But also a special shout out to Gina Dominic, with whom you originated this idea of high theory. I came in a bit later, but Gina didn't continue and I um, sort of, you know, took her place in some ways. And as for my own work, I am a currently fifth year PhD candidate at NYU English. And I work on South Asian economic writing for my dissertation, that is. You, you guys have just started so many different 
threads related not just to podcasts, but to kind of the life of the mind generally that are worth pursuing. But I would just say one thing that strikes me is that um, in starting with the primal romance of sharing an office together, but then also emphasizing the indispensable supplementarity of the fact that you need to be away in order to make it, you're pointing at something that there's a kind of um, like logical paradox at the heart of pandemics, which, uh, sorry, at the heart of podcasts, and especially during the pandemic, which is that they, that they kind of register a sort of intimacy, but they do it by way of alienation and dispersal, <laughs> you know, that, that we're apart in order to be together in this space. Totally. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And like ever since, so we began with episodes where uh, we would just like interview each other, but, you know, then we started inviting guests and yeah. now we have had, like, I can honestly say that our guests have come all over the world. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it has been this, um, as you said, like sort of, um, you know, calibration in like interrelated yeah. calibrations of dispersal and intimacy. But also that intimacy. I remember um, in a, there was a N plus one, uh issue a couple i don't know a while back that i i remember a line from it they, they were talking about podcasts and they were talking about these little voices that whisper in our ears yeah. and how it's so like it's you often experience it as being really close to the body totally so you know you guys were talking about your sort of your origin story is very much like my brother's origin story for a podcast which he's been doing for like 15 years is walking to lunch with two of his friends from the you know the newspaper they all work worked at and wanting to continue those conversations. And so I, and, and our origin story is basically like a happy hour at a bar that we have been trying to pursue in real life. But, but so we have a motto, which is after the conference, the bar, meaning like what we're looking for is that kind of third space where things do open up over rye whiskey or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And yet, and yet what we actually are is a series of, you know, sound, you know, M M4A files <laughs> that that get beamed out, you know, and then I see a map every once in a while that shows me where they've been beamed to. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm still wrestling with that paradox of the kind of warmth of the podcast plus the um, yeah, the, the dispersed nature of it. Um, yeah. 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 And I think a lot about what people do while they're listening mm -hmm. to our podcast. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but like, I, like I mostly drive when I listen to podcasts. Um, but I had a student, I was recording these video lectures for a class and I had a student tell me she watches the video lecture while she washes her dishes. Oh, <laughs> it's like, that's nice. I, but I like, I imagine people yeah. do that with our podcast all the time. Right. Or like, yeah. you know, walk their dogs or well, you know, I want to teach a literature by ear class um, at some point. And and one thing I want to really think about, I mean, I want to think about like the radio play, like I, which I just discovered was really only invented as a concept in the 1930s, which is interesting by people like Louis McNeese at the BBC. Um, but also just the, the, the way in which, um, you know, the intimacy in which with which novel reading was originally imagined. If you think about 18th century responses to what a novel reader was, there was that, yeah, the, the notion of doing it while while do, doing your dishes is sort of seems like a good analogy for how people thought about what the novel could be. It could be sort of pervasively present in the domestic space in a very threatening way. And mm. um, I definitely think that's true of podcasts. You guys are keyword focused. So can you talk a little bit about that and your three questions? So if we are doing a an episode on X, then we ask, what the heck is X? 
how do we use X and how will X save the world? Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the pastoral. So we would ask, you know, how do I, what the heck is the pastoral? How do I use the pastoral and how will it save the world? Great. And I think we're going to try a role reversal today where <laughs> I will be saying the question, just, just for <laughs> listeners to follow along. If you if you can't figure out who's who, that'll be me. <laughs> I think the keyword sort of naturally evolved from our conviction that we are going to do very, very short episodes. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, if you're doing a very short episode, then yeah. there's not much sort of room for, um, you know, anything approaching, I don't know, the monograph or like this kind of long form thinking. So it had to be yeah. like sort of, you know, staccato. Uh, yeah. In, and uh, which led us to, I think, um, the decision that we are going to do, like this sort of very compact episodes focused on this yeah. very, you know, comprehensive idea. So yeah, this we began with that idea that we it's it's going to be really short because we were also trying to kind of do something slightly different uh, from the media through which we kind of apprehend theory. And like one of the ideas I personally began with is that I remember being very scared of theory in my undergrads and theory with a capital T. And that's also because like the kind of way in which theory came to us, which is, you know, if you don't start everything from Plato, then what are you even doing? Mm -hmm. um, and so if you start everything from Plato, obviously you can't do 15 minute episodes. And uh, so that was one of the reasons why we decided that it's going to be, um, you know, it, the, the point of origin is going to be determined by the speaker and that will not kind of, um, you know, always pay on sort of homage to like the long tradition. So it's it's going to be like, kind of um, like a cross section of long thought and which is like this kind of, you know, very comprehensive and compact 15 minute thing. I like that idea. So, okay, so that leads me to my last sort of conceptual question about the differences between our podcasts, which is how, whether you guys understand yourself as like interlocutors, interviewers, conversation partners, because you, 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 you play a somewhat recessive role in your own podcast. Oh, no, I was just going to say there's a shape yeah. to a conversation yeah. and that like we end up sort of breaking that shape apart yeah. and putting it back together differently. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are just making me think that there's a Victorianist versus modernist distinction here <laughs> because I'm I'm very interested in the Victorianist you know, the, the notion of the realist project in the Victorian period as being like, um, you know, that prose is the poetry of everyday life or something like that, that the the, the shrinkage of art is meant to be shrinkage that conforms to the original morphology, as opposed to the modernists, you know, where, where you have Ezra Pound just chopping out quartets or um, it's a different. Yeah, it's, it's a different conception of where the final object sits in relationship to the conversation. That's really helpful, actually, because I think we struggle with that. I think we don't. It's not like we are on the opposite side from you. It's more like we are actually torn about which of those things we're trying to achieve. But also like that being said, I should point out that it's not always that we will like cut out digressions. That's not how we operate. We just, I think we keep in the stuff that's sort of most fun. All right, so, okay. So, so should we try role reversal football then? Do, okay. Yeah. So what the heck is the pastoral? So the pastoral is a poetic mode. <laughs> it's a really old one. 
Um, and and you're right to sort of point to us as modernists, um, I think, because we're both interested in, in this idea of the pastoral, um, which is about um, sort of very old relation of humans to nature and humans to landscape and um, the ideas about working the land um, to, to relate that. Like we're both, I think, interested in how that gets taken up in the early 20th century and is connected to ideas of progress and civilization. So I think the image that we think of when we imagine the pastoral is of a shepherd uh, draped in some sort of, um, you know, Greco-Roman garb, um, tending their flock. And, um, you know, this is where the image of uh, Jesus as a pastor, as like having pastoral care over the, or even the, um, even the the word pastor that is used in Protestant religions instead of priest, um, it comes from this idea of tending a flock of sheep, right? And um, you know, in in the Georgics, in Spencer's Georgics, um, or um, we have uh, an idea of a sort of a romanticized kind of labor in nature. So not only do the shepherds tend their sheep, um, they also, because this form of agricultural labor allows for abundant leisure, um, they also play pipes and compose songs. And so it's, uh, I, I think, in that way, strongly associated with poetry. One of Wikipedia's accounts of the pastoral, which I think it gets from Paul Alpers, is that the author employs various techniques to place the complex life into a simple one. I found that a really interesting formulation. Can you, Kim, can you shed light on that? Or, I mean, like I could get replace the complex life with a simple one. That makes sense to me. But place the complex life into a simple one. That's, that's nuanced. But I feel like that connects a lot to what Sharonic is going to say. Yeah. 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 I think, so um, I don't know, like, like when exactly you want me to sort of begin the text as such. Uh, do it. But, yeah, I think you should do it. Yeah, why don't you oh, tell us about it? Um, yeah, so I the text that I'm going to talk about is called Hinswaraj, and it was written by M.K. Gandhi in 1909 uh, when he was traveling from England to South Africa aboard the ship Kildonan Castle, and which I mean, which is not a sort of not a trivium because he is he talks a lot about how um, the experience of being on ship. And you know, sort of at sea between continents, between nations, uh, resulted in this sort of really intense experience of writing this uh, book in one breath, in a manner of speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the you know the book is first published in South Africa in 1910. It travels to India, where it is um, intercepted by the British government and proscribed for seditious content. Um, Incidentally, it was proscribed in accompanied with Plato's defense of Socrates, which is an interesting fact. Um, and then it was translated by Gandhi to English, and the first Indian edition comes out in 1919. Um, so Hinswaraj is really important in the Gandhian corpus. He talks about the book himself as his, his seed text, sort of, uh, you know, you also have this kind of agrarian um, image there. Uh, so as the beginning of his political journey, one that germinates all of his ideas. Um, 
And the name literally means Hind is obviously reference to India. It has the same root as the word India and Hindustan. And Swaraj means self-rule. Swa is self and Raj is rule or control. So, And so the concept of Swaraj is you know, kind of complex in, in Gandhian philosophy, but it, it carries a meaning of both self-rule and home rule. Uh, so, you know, both kind of a control over the unruly and untamable self uh, practices, aesthetic practices of restraint and so on and so forth, but also home rule and rule of India by Indians. Um, but, you know, the, one of the main, you know, why am I talking about this in an episode about the pastoral is one of the main ideas that germinate in Hinswaraj and that Gandhi will take uh, to extreme lengths throughout his career is his uh, extolling the virtues of the Indian village and how the quintessence and the uniqueness of Indian culture and civilization uh, lies not in supposedly urban centers which mirror and mimic the West, but in the Indian village, which still carries on traditions that you find nowhere else in the world. Um, and um, so that's why, you know, the notion of a peaceable communion between and cohabitation between humans and nature, instead of exploitative um, relationships entailed in the pro progress of technological advancement and civilization. And um, so that that's the kind of subset of the widely ramifying meaning of the pastoral that I'm taking for, to talk about Hinswaraj. And um, so he see in the book, he sees civilization uh, or, you know, the Western civilization as a, an advancement of physical good in expense of moral and spiritual good. And uh, he says, you know, that's not the way to do it. It's a machinic civilization. It reduces human beings to drudges, you know, things that obviously Marx also talks about and other people at the time are, you know, talking about. Um, but it also, I mean, just as an aside, that kind of critique of civilization goes to extreme lengths. At one point in the book, he says, you know, women are um, sort of serving as drudges in labor, uh, in, in sort of laboring as drudges in these factories. And that is one of the reasons why the suffragette movement is happening right now, which is, which makes, you know, very little sense. And it's a, uh, one of the other things about this book, it's, it's, it's extreme eccentricity. Um, but to go back to kind of what Kim was saying is that, you know, this is, this is not my reading. This is Akhil Bilgrami's reading, uh, Akhil Bilgrami, the philosopher who's at Columbia. Um, and he thinks, he reads Hinswaraj and he talks about it and he says that, you know, it's essentially, uh, you know, in 1909, uh, when the book comes out, uh, Gandhi kind of thinks of India as a as at a political and moral crossroads where it could take the path that Europe has taken since the early modern period. Uh, but, you know, that will result in, you know, everything leading to industrial revolution and the kind of moral and spiritual corruption that that has kind of engendered. So why not, given that we are trying to rid ourselves of the yoke of colonial of a colonial power why not also get rid of the cultural and civil civilizational aspects that they have put on us and try to kind of invent a new kind of civilization that will essentially help us go back to our roots in a certain respect so you know in going back to your um, you know the kind of the romantic core of many modernist um, 
you know, movements, it's, it's a qualified return to, you know, a past, but a past, which is, uh, it's, it's not like a complete return to the past, but it's a past that is essentially reconstructed. The question I want, the larger question I want to ask that's related to that, and I hope this is a question about the pastoral, I have to kind of think about how it is. It's really a question about the elective affinity between the moral or spiritual degradation, the, the antithetical West that he's worried about, and the technological. Like, in other words, is, is the notion that the technology itself is what precipitates this other moral and spiritual configuration that is to be avoided? Or is there a image of disaggregation? Like we could have our own, you know, like Cosa Nostra, like our own thing, which would be our own version of technology, which would not go down that path. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, the anti-technological uh, uh, stance of Gandhi is very well known. His, this Hinswaraj itself contains his, uh, all of his opinions against the railways and how the railways um, mm. have essentially, um, you know, disturbed uh, a kind of more, again, pastoral and idyllic um, landscape. And, uh, but yeah, so in terms of whether the, the evil rests in technology itself or whether we should invent another kind of technology for ourselves, I think Gandhi's, as far as Gandhi will allow, uh, technology up to the point that it is, um, you know, it, its main locus is the village artisan, let's say. You know, there's everything to admire and um, wax poetic about the, the labor of the artisan, the labor of the former, the labor of uh, people who are, you know, kind of making a livelihood out of the, the natural matrix, so to speak. But uh, that is, of course, a, a labor of a different kind and order than from, uh, you know, the labor of the workman in the factory. I was just going to point out that Lukács' theory of the novel is like 1914, so virtually the same time. And do you remember the, the line he has is... Uh, um, you know, that, that we long for those days when the light that glowed in the stars is the same that glowed in our souls, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's that known, that notion that modernity is a site of transcendental shelterlessness and that, you know, we, we had an organic integration between, right. yeah. our, you know, self and world really that we've now lost. Yeah. It's so, you know, how, how far, um, Gandhi, so Gandhi is definitely Gandhi his idea of the village is, you know, ideal, romantic. And so, you know, his opinions or his idea of the village sort of comes to a head towards the, like right before independence around 1945 in his correspondence with people who are, who would go on to form the first government of independent India and mainly Jawaharlal Nehru who becomes the first prime minister. And so in a 1945 letter to Nehru, Gandhi writes, the village of my dreams is still in my mind. After all, every man lives in the world of his dreams. My ideal village will contain intelligent human beings. They will not live in dirt and darkness as animals. Men and women will be free and able to hold their own against anyone in the world. There will be neither plague nor cholera nor smallpox. No one will be idle. No one will wallow in luxury. Um, everyone will have to contribute his quota of manu manual labor. Uh, I do not want to draw a large scale picture in detail. It is possible to envisage railways, post and telegraph office it is material to obtain the real article. The rest will fit into the picture afterwards. So uh, 
couple of things. One, on the one hand, is this kind of heightened romance uh, of this picture of the village that he draws. And this is, you know, 45, 40, whatever, uh, 40 odd years after. And um, the village becomes this kind of aspirational signifier with the help of which to orient present politics, right? Uh, but the main, like the kind of the, and I've, I've just written about this in a chapter, so which is why yeah. all of in my mind. All of the words, you have all of the words. So, but the main thing is that you know, it's, it's kind of the, also the story, uh, the denouement is that the government and the planning commission, uh, you know, rejects Gandhi's idea of decentralization and chooses a strong federal government. And, uh, you know, Nehru says uh, that, you know, that's, that's all I'm good, but we cannot rest our hopes and faith on the village. Uh, we have to have like an urban developed India. So, uh, you know, it's, and from the vantage of that, when you go back and, you know, look at Gandhi's, um, it's the romance really strikes you hard, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So Kim, can I, can I turn to you and ask how do I use the pastoral? Like, is this a good time to turn to your second totally. text? Yeah. Yeah. And also I, I think, um, so I think my text is really good for the question of use. Um, yeah. So, and also connected to that um, line that Sharonik just quoted for us from Gandhi's letter from the forties. So um, I wanted to talk to you guys about Charlotte Perkins Gilman's novel, Her Land, um, which is a 1915 utopian text where um, three American adventurers uh, who are strapping young men of various American types um, get up an adventure to South America because they've heard that there is a civilization of, of women, all women who live in the mountains and they, um, they have their little biplane and they fly up there and they crash. Actually, they don't crash, they land. And then they're sort of like taken over by the women and they're kind of freaked about it. And they have all these sort of preconceptions of what a civilization of men like, and of course, all of them turn out to be false because this is a you know piece of feminist propaganda, um, and um, it you know it turns out that the women are have this incredibly advanced civilization, and it's one that sounds a lot like that ideal village that Shronik was talking about. It's one in which no one is ever sick, in which everyone always has enough to eat, everyone always has enough to do. There are you know all the sort of potential conflicts are locally managed, and it's just like a perfectly run society. Um, and the called way that Wakanda. Gilman... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's a bit like Wakanda. Um, but anyways, what I wanted, the reason I was thinking about it in relation to the pastoral is because it's a, the way that the country is described, the way the landscape is described is, um, is basically as a perfect garden. So it's a vision of the, um, it's a vision of nature that has been completely integrated with human culture. And I think that is a very sort of uh, modernist fantasy of the pastoral. Um, so I'll read, um, so she, this is one of the things she, so they described the lands as a garden a lot. They've actually dug up the entire forest and replanted it with fruit bearing trees, yeah. right? Um, and she, they, re they refer to the country as a mighty garden. Um, and there's, 
see. Yeah. So they, um, I had never seen as, and had scarcely imagined human beings undertaking such a work as the deliberate replanting of an entire forest area with different kinds of trees. Yet this seemed to them the simplest common sense, like a man's plowing up an inferior lawn and reseeding it. Now every tree bore fruit, edible fruit, that is. Um, and so, and you know, it's it's like, it's like California, which is very of that moment. Um, there's citrus fruits and figs and olives that grow abundantly. And, and so it's like, it's this sort of, um, it's this vision of material prosperity that's produced by human interaction with the landscape. Do you guys remember the Chap Charlie Chaplin movie, Modern Times, that at the end there's a fantasy where he's describing to her, or maybe they're dreaming what their life will be, and it is a California bungalow. And it's not just that the, tr the tree sticks its branch into the kitchen window to drop oranges on their plate. And then a cow shows up at the door and he turns a switch on the cow's udder and milk comes out. Like, it's not even like he milks it. He just turns it. And I, I show that to my students sometimes to try to explain, you know, like think about different modalities of fantasy and that notion of the world for us. I mean, I think that's such an important dimension of the pastoral. And I, I kind of feel like that's in the classic, in the classic period too. Like people like Marvell are already aware that pastoralism that the pastoral as a mode is already a vision of like nature, not in its wildness, but for us, you know? So on the one hand, it's a return to nature. We're not in the city. We're going back out to the village or the simpler life. On the other hand, what we're returning to is a space that is already of and for us. Like it's instrumental in that sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think in, in that regard, a useful point of contrast and another like theory of thinking about human interaction with nature would be the sublime, mm -hmm. right? The pastoral is very definitely not the sublime. Yeah. It is not nature as this overwhelming force that will take you out of yourself. Mm -hmm. It is not cataracts and waterfalls and mountains and, you know, just sort of nature's greatness. It is nature that is on a human scale. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm feeling like the text that I should have chosen again, it does feel like news from news from nowhere is the perfect text for this because it also makes that same Herland claim of like a vision. So it's a, a perfect vision of England in the future, but it's a repurposed medieval landscape. And like, there's all these wood blocks in the, in the text, which are very medieval. And the notion is that thanks to the magic of something called the power barges, we in England in the future are going to be able to right remake this space, not, not in a technologically advanced way, but in a way that because we are so very, very sophisticated will be the ultimate utilization of nature. Um, it's a kind of, it's almost like a chiasmus, like it's a doubling back to nature, but from a super advanced, sophisticated civilizational perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would say that the thing that allows Charlotte Perkins Gilman to do this, to have this faith in the sort of human ability to shape the environment is her faith in eugenics. Yes. Like that's like she, and so the the race of women who occupy this land reduce, re reproduce parthenogenically. Mm -hmm. So they, they, you know, just have virgin births over and over again, but they've called their race. 
they've, you know, they've selectively bred, they figured out like how to prevent themselves from doing parthenogenesis. And so they've got birth control and they, um, they say, you know, who can be allowed to reproduce and who can't. Right. right? Um, and they also, but they do that with everything else. Mm -hmm. It's not just the people, uh, right. They've, they've, for, they've exterminated all animals basically. And they've, they only have cats and birds yeah. and they've bred the birds for the pleasure of their song. Mm -hmm. And they've bred the cats also for the, for the pleasurable sounds they make. So the cats can no longer hiss and screech. Ah. <laughs> they can only purr. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So the, the, the word I had originally floated for you guys was anthropocentrism or anti-anthropocentrism. And then you, you cleverly defect, deflected to the pastoral and it took me a little while to catch up but now I can really see that turn there because you're talking about a kind of anthropocentrism of the pastoral which in a way is precisely exacerbated by the way that the pastoral positions itself as anti-technological or anti-urban or anti-modern but nonetheless by way of locating the human as kind of always already at the center of this world yeah well, I, I almost hate to turn to your final question then, but I want to see what you guys are going to do with this. So how can the pastoral save the world? If I can take one thing away from Gandhi's in Swaraj is his idea of using the romance of the self-sufficient, happy utopian village as a kind of political um, or like a transcendental political signifier to orient ourselves towards uh, with the knowledge that we're not going to have that. But at the same time, to use it as kind of a, to give us a kind of motive force uh, to imbue our politics with principles of care and trusteeship, as opposed to kind of exploitative relationships with mm -hmm. each other and with nature. Um, Kim? Yeah. Well, and when you and I were talking about this before today's conversation, Shanik, um, you talked about how how Gandhi spiritualized the resistance movement, right? And I think that's really connected to what you're saying, like the, like the fantasy of the pastoral could serve as this spiritual ideal. Yeah, it's, a, it's I mean, he, he really kind of, uh, I think one of the successes of Gandhi's uh, work is that he was able to bring together political and spiritual aspects of what he was doing together so that at the opposite end of it, like if if someone, you know, the the kind of the random Gandhian, let's say, which you know, people from my family were also involved in at the time. Um, so the you know this person who was coming to the Gandhian movement will have this kind of comprehensive thing to imbibe and follow, which will which promises both kind of personal spiritual upliftment as well as a direction towards political emancipation. Uh, so that's that's really, I think, one of the successes of um, what Gandhi was doing. I totally take that point. And I really appreciate your modernist uh, impetus to look at something like pastoral progress without modernization narrative or something. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. I just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I want to hear your recallable book, Kim. It's like, okay, as, so as I... listeners know, recallable book is where we say, <laughs> if you love the conversation here, 
where would you, where else might you want to go? What other books might you want to look at? So I would suggest that uh, if you want to think more about the direction that we seem to be headed, you um, do some research into this commune called Drop City. Hmm. Um, right. It was a commune. There, it was. A, there's a couple books about it. Um, none of them are truly amazing. There's a novel called Drop City um, by T.C. Boyle, but it's actually about the Morning Star commune, which is a different commune in. in um, in California, Drop City was in Colorado. Um, it has amazing architecture. There's a memoir about it called Droppers, America's First Tippie Commune. Um, and uh, there's a film about it, which I think has the same name. Um, and it, um, it's about a sort of bunch of art students who buy a goat pasture in Colorado and build geodesic domes and have this fantasy of sort of living off the grid, but it's it's very much the denouement of, of this sort of modernist pastoral mode, but one that is kind of fallen apart into a technological utopianism and a sort of failure of the agricultural component of it, so. Interesting. I would say not just geodesic, but like psychedelic geodesic, looking at the pictures, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's fascinating. They have good architecture. Yeah, uh, dome book. Also, if you're if you're curious about the domes, uh, there's this whole there's a, a whole bunch of collections about the how to make the domes uh, and put photographs of them. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And Sharonic, have you got? You said you have a recallable book. I did. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, my mine is more mainstream, and my recallable book is John Ruskin's Until This Last. Mm which is kind of the key inspirational text for Gandhi. And Gandhi talks a lot about it. And he he read it while he was in South Africa together with um, Tolstoy. And, you know, he was reading Tolstoy and Ruskin at the same time. Tolstoy was also reading Ruskin. And yeah. sort of um, Gandhi went into a correspondence with Tolstoy towards the very end of Tolstoy's life. Yeah. Um, but so Ruskin, as you know, was a Victorian polymath, but first famous for modern his book, Modern Painters, and principal kind of exegete of the pre-Raphaelites. Um, and uh, so Gandhi read Unto This Last, and he called it the magic spell of a book, uh, which brought about an instantaneous and practical transformation in his life. And having read the book, he left the city of Durban, and he went to the Phoenix settlement, yep. uh, which was the basis for his you know later developed ideas of communal living and um, where he also published his um, periodical Indian opinion from there. Yeah, the title of the book unto this last comes from the parable of the workers in the vineyard where the owner of a vineyard promises to pay the same to every worker unto this last, uh, irrespective of how much time that they have worked. And um, you know, Ruskin uses, uh, uses this idea to critique uh, popular classical economic side, you know, ideas that have come down from Smith, uh, Ricardo and uh, Malthus. And so he, Ruskin kind of imbues the idea, the core economic tenets with principles mm -hmm. of care. And, you know, he, he has this kind of hierarchical paternalistic um, idea that, you know, the people who have under their control the means of production should care, have responsibility to care for, uh, you know, socioeconomic lower classes. And this is, this is directly influential in Gandhi's idea of trusteeship, where he thinks that, the wealthy are not owners, yeah. but trustees of wealth uh, who hold the wealth uh, 
in trusteeship for the poor, which is of course like a com- very complicated and very right. paternalistic idea. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, uh, and Gandhi himself translates and paraphrases unto this last, and he, re- he names it Sarvodaya, which literally that's means welfare for all. And, uh, I think yeah, that's so that's, great. That's you know, I think record. there's been this agreement among Victorianists to just put Ruskin away because we fight about him too much. And I, I think it's a, you make a really good case for like, we, we really need to surface him again and have those fights all over. Because honestly, I find his politics reprehensible. Like I find Ruskin disgusting. I don't, I have, I have zero, <laughs> zero tolerance for the vision, the critique that he is making of liberalism. I'm not, uh, and this is not from a position of wanting to defend Victorian liberalism, but the grounds on which he attacks it seems so problematically paternalistic to me that I cannot, I can't find any way through. But so many Victorianists do. I mean, there's so many people who are inspired by it. And and that's, I I would never want to argue with that. It's just like when I go back to the text themselves, I'm, I'm filled with rage, you know? <laughs> it's like. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, you know, to go back to the, sort of, incomplete, I mean, definitely incomplete uh, conversation about yeah. caste. It's the, one of the, the main through line from Ruskin to Gandhi is, as you said, the paternalism and the ideas of trusteeship, the idea that the elite are somehow responsible for the benefit of um, you know, the oppressed, and which is, uh, it's impossible to build a, you know, a politics that will actually help the oppressed from that position. So which is why, uh, you know, I also in, I am in complete disagreement with yeah. that through line, but at the same time, I also agree with you that Ruskin is definitely like in in um, kind of in the larger field of heterodox yeah. um, Victorian ideas. Definitely, Ruskin I, I totally is, agree. I mean, even the fights between him and Darwin, which again, I'm a hundred percent with Darwin, but the nature of those disagreements about like the peacock and the bat, and you know the ideal like God's inspiration and form, but all of that stuff, it right, it's heterodox and pre-germinative. It's very germinative. Just, I don't like most of what comes up, but yeah. Um, okay, so I'll just very quickly say, I mean, this is a good again a good pivot to my Thomas Hardy novel, which is. 1878. I can't remember when Unto This Last comes out, but um, is it? Uh, Ruskin's Unto This Last comes out in okay, 1860. Okay, so, so Return of the Native, which is a relatively early Hardy novel, but I, I wanted to think about the anti-pastoral impulse in Hardy, and I feel like a lot of the impetus towards anti-pastoralism has been something we've canvassed in this discussion, but just to sort of say it explicitly, I think what Hardy is against is the elegiac and nostalgic tendency to imagine the greensward of England as a place that, you know, the elite and the urban wealthy could return to, to find redemptive meaning. And so Return of the Native is really about the, um, you know, it's kind of a complex genealogy of how every space on earth is like laminated historically by all of these layers of meaning. The first chapter doesn't have any human beings in it. And the second chapter, I believe the title of the second chapter is humanity appears on the scene hand in hand with trouble. So the idea is that like every effort to create a ideal, uh, backward green space that is there for human benefit is is always a fiction that is brought along with kind of an instrumental rationality that means to exploit and uproot. So, so I guess I'm making the case for Hardy as anti-anthropocentric, partly by way of being anti-pastoral. 
And and I just wanted to note, interestingly, I did a Google search on the anti-pastoral because I thought, oh, surely there'll be like some mode, you know, and I found a very nice poem on a website called the anti-pastoral. And I found, you know, a, uh, a thesis written by somebody in Durban um, in 2003 about the anti-pastoral. But, you know, it doesn't seem to be a mode that people have named. Um, and yet, I don't know. I mean, when I look at Hardy, it, it, that's part of the way I understand what Hardy is doing. So anyway. Yeah, I I completely agree. So I have had a complicated yeah. relationship with yeah. Hardy's work. Uh, we had a, like Hardy was sort of featured big in uh, my undergrads and we read Return yeah. of the Native. We read um, yeah. North Casterbridge. And I remember to go back to something that yeah. Kim was saying that how uh, much I hate Hardy? No, no. <laughs> Egdon Heath in the Return of the Native is definitely about the sublime in nature, right? It's it's it sort of sort of wrenches you out of yourself, and then you are just like completely overwhelmed by the the massive power of this 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 place, and uh, you know that's something that obviously uh, Hardy um, enjoys as opposed to uh, you know methodized in any way nature. So yeah, I completely agree that, you know, the, just with your point that like, this is an anti, anti-pastoral sentiment. Um, well, uh, you guys, it's a great conversation. It could go on and on, seriously. I really, I really enjoyed this, but I think it just remains for me now to say that recall this book is sponsored by the Mandel Humanities Center. It uh, music comes from Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, sound editing by Claire Ogden, website design and social media from Nye Kim. And we always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media or our website. And if you enjoyed today's show, um, first of all, please head right over to High Theory and subscribe because I think you will love it. It's a fantastic podcast. And then also, I invite you to check out other episodes of Recall This Book and be sure to write us, uh, write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. So, um, Kim and Tronic, thank you so much. Thank you so much, John, for inviting us and uh, yeah. having this conversation with us. We are so very thrilled uh, and can't wait for this episode to come out. Yeah, thank you. It's been it's been an honor. It's been great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening.